Well, as we survey the landscape of modern evangelicalism, we often are confronted with a very different view of that of the New Testament. One particular area of greatest difference is the pastor's qualifications. So you think about what it means to be a pastor. No doubt many of you know pastors. Outside of this local church, you've come across folks, maybe even on the, on the street. Hey, I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah. More than what makes a pastor, what makes a pastor successful? We live in a very success-driven culture. We Leaders are driven by a success syndrome. They want to be not only popular, but successful. As we think about that, I've pulled just a number of recent examples from churches within our own denomination. And I get so much joy doing this. Listen to these. These are pastor search committees. They've put these together. This is what they put on their job search for their new, their new pastor. The lead pastor position will be best fulfilled by a visionary servant leader who's gifted in nurturing healthy relationships and can effectively communicate the vision God has placed in the heart of First Baptist Church. This role will primarily be responsible for preaching, vision casting, and leadership while gaining relational equity among the body of believers and the church. Not terrible, I mean... Not bad. That's pretty good. I mean, someone did some work on that one. Uh, but, but notice, if you heard me emphasize the word vision, vision, a term borrowed from corporate America, to have a vision, a mission statement. Pastor, you need to have a vision for your church. Okay. Uh, the New Testament. How about that? Another church lists this. The prospective pastor must be a leader in prayer, spiritual formation, and development. Amen, right? And then they go on. Our church feels. Our church feels the pastor should prioritize his duties in the following order. Sermon prep. Amen. Visiting members. All right. Community involvement. Ooh, good. Involvement with others and oversight of children and youth ministry, leadership and administration of church and church of the church and church staff, followed by others. So preaching's at the top, and there's some other things that he should attend to as well. Listen to these. These are at the bottom of the list. Like personal Bible study and prayer, visiting prospective members, counseling, soul winning, and attending denominational or associational meetings. Oh, and by the way. This last sentence was added. The candidate should be a graduate of an accredited Southern Baptist seminary. Yes, that's a New Testament qualification. Another church listed this in their qualifications. Uh, he will be a creative problem solver and have the ability to identify opportunities that will increase the growth in membership across all generations, believers and non-believers. So quite a burden. No doubt the guy who fought that proceeded burned out in ministry, I would imagine, with that responsibility to grow the church. What a burden to build Jesus' church that must be. And finally, 
Uh, the pastor shall prayerfully seek to follow the will of God and leadership of the Holy Spirit. A college graduate in theology is preferred, but not required. Three plus years of experience as senior pastor. Oh, and this is my favorite. Competent in Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, and Excel. Proven leadership and, Pastor Rod, I think you might be able to do this one. Vocational, oh rather vocal or musical talent would be a plus. So there you go. If you ever wondered what I do for entertainment, it is to uh, surf the SBC job board and look at pastor qualifications. I get a lot of entertainment. I, a number of years ago, I, I use this one a lot, so, but I'll use it this morning. A number of years ago, I was, I was looking at some of these, and, and I was reading one, and, and on there listed was pastor's resp uh, responsibilities, job responsibilities, right? So there's qualifications, all of these, and by the way, I, I mean, I'm being facetious a bit, but all of these lists, you know, oh, we need 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and so on and so forth. All of them list that, but then they get down to how they feel the pastor should be. And uh, one of them, I, I loved it, I, I, I like printed it out, I kept it. It said that the pastor's responsi was responsible to shovel the snow from the sidewalks. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I am not making that up. That was on a Southern Baptist Church job board. All right. Uh, I told that to Pastor Scott one Sunday, and he said, uh, "Have they ever heard of deacons?" And I was like, "Apparently not." Um. So, well, while not all of these are. Uh, these qualifications are unbiblical or, or, for that matter, impractical, right? The question remains, what makes a pastor qualified to be a pastor? Uh, why should you listen to a sermon about pastor qualifications? You, you're, you're thinking, I will never be a pastor. Well, friends, you have, you, you've, you're a member of a Baptist church. This is not a Presbyterian church. You don't merely need to affirm the statement of faith. You have to believe the statement of faith. It's not that you merely will be taught the statement of faith, but you have a responsibility to vote, to call the pastor, and to know what those qualifications are. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes to churches, he writes to pastors, and then to subsequently to churches. This means that fundamentally that the elders and pastors don't pick who the elders and pastors are, but rather the congregation. And so if you are a member of this church, you have a responsibility to, uh, I think, a God-given authority to affirm who the elders are of a local gathering, not some ordination council. We could get in the weeds on that for just a moment, but, but Baptists, do you know how many of our Baptist forefathers cringe in their graves over such words like Baptist ordination? Like as if we weren't wanted to be like the Church of England? Or we wanted to be like the Roman Catholic Church that had some ordination? Not at all. No, it is the individual church that calls and affirms through the majority of the congregation saying, yes, this is an elder. This is a pastor. Look at the New Testament. Here it is. This is exactly what we want to affirm. We want to uphold a biblical view of congregationalism. Believing that we hold in trust together. There are no ruling elders here this morning. Pastor Rod and I are fellow elders 
and members with you, seeking to shepherd and lead us toward God's purposes for his church, not ruling over you and making the decision for you. Well, with that in mind, I want us to remind us where we've been before we get here. Because I think that so often we, we pull and we lift these verses from 1 Timothy 3 out of their historical context. Now, we get the literary context quite right. It's in the middle of the letter. It, it comes after what preceded and it comes before what, what follows. However, this was written to deal with a particular issue. If you'll remember, Paul has sent young Timothy down to the church in Ephesus to put in place or put in order the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. Now, why? Well, because there had been elders from within the congregation who had arisen and began to teach false doctrine, to begin to lead the church away from a Christ-centered evangelistic ministry. And so Paul is sending Timothy down there and saying, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to deal with these false teachers. I want you to deal with it by being committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching and teaching the gospel. You are to do ministry according to his word, not according to how you fancy ministry should be done. You are to rightly divide the word of truth to use other passages from the New Testament. You are to rightly teach from the word what the Bible actually says and to rightly apply it to the people of the church. We learned also that the ministry of the church was not to be, uh, was truly rather, was to be truly gospel-centered as it not only edified the saints, but also was evangelistic in the world. You'll remember Paul exhorted the church to be a praying church. Why? That they might lead a quiet and peaceful life, that, that people might be attracted to the, to the gospel through their prayers. And so in these subsequent chapters, in chapters 2, four, 3, 4, 5, and 6, Paul deals with more practical matters of the life of a local church within the context of false teachers. And so when we read these qualifications, we need to read them in light first of their historical context, namely that there were some false teachers that were not representative of these qualities. Secondly, it has been noted that when Paul deals with false teachers, when he calls them out by name in the New Testament, he never calls out their morality, but always their doctrine. In other words, there was such a high standard of morality for elders that at least they got that right. It was their doctrine that was ultimately wrong. Last week we considered how the church had gotten off of the gospel by, re, by, by sort of a role reversal that had crept into the church. Women in roles that men were called to and men advocating those roles. And, and Paul says, men, I want you to lead out in the praying Ministry of the church, men, you ought to be praying and being prayers, praying up front and, and, and in the center. You ought to lead out in that way, not only privately, but publicly. And Paul exhorted the women to pursue God, not by changing lanes, but rather to stay in their lane and to do what God had called them to do. And in doing so, something glorious happened, something mysterious happened. They would put on display the wonders and glories of God's grace as they clothed themselves in good works for God's glory. 
In this way, Paul now turns his attention to the qualifications of two New Testament offices, the only two offices that we find in the New Testament. So we're going to do a bit of a systematic understanding of pastors this morning, but also specifically the qualifications here. With that in mind, I invite you to turn, if you've not done so already, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we're going to consider verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." I've summarized this passage in this sentence. Christ has called, equipped, and gifted every local church with a plurality of godly pastors who have the noble task of overseeing the teaching ministry of the church by exemplifying Christ through their life and practice. I'll say that again. Christ has gifted it is a gift to the local church. That's why we pray, God, raise up godly elders. Because we believe ultimately pastors are a gift to his church. Jesus equips his church, Ephesians 4, with shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Christ is called, he's equipped, he's gifted every local church with a plurality of pastors. We don't believe in a lone pastor. No lone rangers around here. We believe the biblical model is to have more than one. That could be two, that could be 200, but more than one. To shepherd, the, the model of the New Testament was for churches to be led by a plurality of pastors who have not an ordinary task, not a boring task, but a noble task, an honoring task, a stand before Jesus on judgment day task of teaching. The function of an elder is to teach is to preach God's word. That is what elders do. We could boil down their job to simply that, to teach. But they are to teach in a way that exemplifies Christ through their life and practice. In other words, they ought to be godly examples. Brothers and sisters, we can sum up the basic model of Christianity in Paul's words to the church in Corinth. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's it. Live a godly life. Call others to godliness and say, hey, just do what I'm doing and we'll all get to heaven one day. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And pastors are to exemplify Christ through a godly life by living before the congregation in example. And that's why Paul puts the emphasis here in this passage on the godly characteristics and this function of teaching 
for the, for the pastor. So the purpose of this time this morning is for us just to dig deep and to understand what it means to be a pastor. What, what should we be looking for? What standard should you hold the elders of this church to? So not only thinking about calling elder or affirming an elder, but the standard by which we measure the success of the pastorate. Let's consider these in three points. We see three aspects. Number one, all men should aspire to the office of pastor. All Christian men should aspire to the office of pastor. This is the point I want to drive home to you this morning. You might think, I have never heard a sermon preached where every man in the church is called to be a pastor. Well, apparently you didn't read your Bible. Because look at what he says here in verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying. Now, Paul only begins two other times in this letter in that way. This is a trustworthy saying. It's akin to verily, verily, Jesus' usage of verily, verily. In other words, hey, pay attention, pay attention. What I'm about to say is real good. Paul only uses this two other times. First, we saw it in verse 15. Of chapter 1, look with me there. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is this good saying, Paul? What is this trustworthy saying? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. A rich, gospel-saturated passage about the centrality of the atonement of Christ for sinners. Where else did he use it? Well, he used it in chapter 4, verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this, for this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Again, another gospel-saturated passage. One central to the tenets of the faith, right? In other words, we get a good sense from these two verses what Christianity is all about. But right here, smack in the middle, is this trustworthy saving about a, what a pastor is? I believe Paul begins this way to emphasize the importance of this office. Brothers and sisters, we all know what happens. The way the pastor goes, so goes the church. That's the way it is. In a sense, no, this is not universally applicable if you go to a church where there's been a pastor or pastors, plural, for a number of years in leadership in that church, I guarantee you that church is as passionate about the things he and they are passionate about. That's what happens. A church that's evangelistic is because their pastors are evangelistic. A church that cares about the gospels because their pastors compare, care about. They're, they're, look, you, you want a question? There's a reason why your kids act the way they act. It's because you act that way. All right? Your kids think the way they think because it's a modeling aspect, brothers and sisters. And it's no different. What the pastors care about, the church cares about. And Paul is so centered on making sure that, the, that Timothy understands that this is not something just to kind of set on the back burner. But this is a gospel central issue because what the church is taught is what the church is going to believe. And that's why it's so important. In other words, this is, there are gospel implications to the pastorate. 
This is not something the church should take lightly and leave to just a, a committee of folks that, that you're trusting. My goodness gracious. It is the reputation of the church that is at stake. Well, as we get into this passage, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of what? Overseer. The word that Paul uses there is episkopos. Well, that translates into English, bishop. Now, Baptists here this morning are like, ah, we don't know no bishops uh, here this morning. And so this is a foreign term to so many of us. Episcopos. You know the word Episcopalian, right? The Episcopalian church. Well, this is where they get their word from to mean Episcopal, meaning bishop, right? The Episcopalian church has a bishop, right? Uh, the Church of England has a bishop. All right, the Roman Catholic Church has a bishop, the bishop. In other words, the leader, the, the, the one central figure. But all of this, this idea came many, many years later. This is foreign to the New Testament. The word best translated into English is overseer, a leader, someone who gives oversight to the church. And our understanding of the New Testament is that the word bishop or overseer is a word that is used interchangeably with a couple other words. One other one that's somewhat foreign to us, naturally, is Baptist, is the word elder, presbyteros, presbytery. Uh, good Baptist, we, we don't use that, right, often. We, uh, that sounds too Presbyterian, presbyter, right? We don't use the word elder. Often when we think of someone who's an elder, we think of someone who's older, right? But if someone, if you grew up Presbyterian, no doubt you think, well, no, that's the guy who stand up on the stage, um, the, the, the leaders of the church, the, the elders of the church. And so here at Catonsville, we choose intentionally to use the word elder to talk about the leaders of the church because, well, it's a New Testament word. It's in the New Testament. It's in your Bibles, brothers and sisters, the word elder. And in a number of places, Paul uses these words interchangeably overseer and elder. So this morning, he's writing to the overseers. These are the qualifications of an overseer. But in chapter 5 of this same letter in verse 17, when talking about the same group of people, he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. Right? So he's talking about the same group of people. Or in Titus chapter 1, he uses, uh, if you want to look on this on your own, you'll see that he uses, uh, he tells Titus, hey, I want you to appoint elders, a plurality of elders in every church throughout Crete. So in every one of our churches, I want more than one pastor leading those churches, or elders rather. And then later in verse 7, he says, for an overseer, you see, he uses this interchangeably. Well, where do we get the word pastor from? Why, why do Baptists use the word pastor, not elder or overseer? Well, well, we get the word pastor from 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, or 1 Peter rather, sorry, 1 Peter, I'm talking about a different problem. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he, Peter writes this, So I exhort the elders among you. Okay, well, we've heard that word, the, pre, the presbyter, the presbyteros, the, the elders among us. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and, as, and of a partake, partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. In other words, Peter says, hey, elders, you have a function. You have a responsibility. Well, what is that, Peter? It is to 
shepherd, or the English word pastor, the flock of God. And so the word pastor means to shepherd. It means to, to give oversight, to lead, right? To, to guide and direct in a spiritual way God's people. Now, one New Testament commentator wrote this. These various uses of these words, bishop or overseer, elder, presbyteros, pastor, shepherd, gives us a sense of the term as describing individuals who have a responsibility to guard, oversee, care for, ensure the standards are maintained and the laws followed, and superintend other people, human conscience, and households. In other words, they are to be leaders. So regardless of what term we use, elder, pastor, bishop, um, it all refers to the same office. And we've chosen most naturally to use the word pastor because that's what we're most accustomed to hearing among us good Baptist folks. Um, and bishop, by the way, comes with so much historical garbage and baggage um, that that term has almost lost any sense of its original meaning. But here we are, we see again. So Paul is writing here and saying, listen, I'm talking about the office of pastor. And he who aspires to this office desires a noble task. Now back to our point. Why do I mean that all men should, all Christian men should aspire to be pastors? Well, that's what Paul says. He says, if anyone, and again, he's not talking about male, female here. He's talking about those qualified men. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good task, an okay task, uh, you know, get some rewards. On, no, a noble task. Now, again, remember, Paul's writing this in the context of false teachers. There may have been some in the church that thought, man, I don't want nothing to do with pastor. Look at those pastors. They are a whole bunch of trouble. But Paul here is saying, no, 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 you've missed the understanding. This is a gospel central, a, a, an important role in the life of the local church to edify the saints. In other words, the, the elders of the church have the good privilege of helping people get to heaven. Not that in an atoning, atoning way, but rather in a shepherding way. In a leading way. We, we're all gathered together trying to help one another get to the celestial city. And so, brother, sister, we ought to hold up this office. Not to see it as a task like, hey, you know, if you don't have anything else to do with your life, be a pastor. But rather, we should encourage the men of our church to see this as a noble task. We ought to push away any misunderstandings of vocational pastoral ministry. Now, yes, there is some vocation where, where men like myself give their full time and energy to the efforts of pastoral ministry. But that doesn't mean that Pastor uh, Rod or Pastor Scott are any less than a pastor. You don't do it full time or get paid full, fully from the church. Not at all. You see, the New Testament knew both and not either or. And friends, as we grow in a, in a more secular age, an age in which the church will be strained more and more financially and spread more and more thinly. We ought to understand there is a place to see men risen up from among the congregation to shepherd the church that maybe isn't their primary vocation. And while we're on the topic, we need to understand that you need not have a seminary degree 
in order to be a pastor, you just need to be holy. That's it. And be able to teach. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. We want to see that aspiration, we ought to aspire to be a pastor. Now, one of the things we'll notice here in these qualifications as we get to them is there's nothing extraordinary about them. The office is a noble office, but the, responsi- the, the qualifications are not extraordinary. The, off, the, the, the qualifications are not anything beyond what God has called everyone who follows Christ to be. As we th- consider these. And so, brother, this morning, if you're thinking, man, I will never be qualified. I will never be that holy. Well, brother, did Jesus die for your sins? Are, are you a Christian? Well, then you're qualified in some respect. You ought to work to grow to be more and more Christ-like. As we'll see in a moment. Are others following you as you teach them? Let us uphold this office, see it as good, noble, and right. While all men should should aspire to be pastor, we will see that not all men are qualified. Look here in verses two and three, two through three. We see ten qualities of a godly pastor, and I am not going to spend at length on each of these, but I'm going to highlight the ones that I think Paul is, is trying to raise to the surface. We see six positive characteristics in verse 2. One gift to employ, one function. It really only talks about one job responsibility that the pastor has. And then we see four negative characteristics to avoid. We see six positives there in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be. The language there is a necessity. Uh, it is necessary that an overseer is these things. There, there's no wiggle room here. It's not like, oh, he's got, you know, he's got five out of the six. That'll do. Not at all. This is like, Paul's like, this is a must. This isn't a should. This isn't an ought. This is a must. It is necessary. Why is it necessary? Because it has gospel implications. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a, this is a gospel central issue. Church, go wrong here and you will lose the gospel. Therefore, an overseer must be, what does he say? Above reproach. Now, just a note, he will begin with above reproach and he will end with above reproach. Seems to be that being above reproach is pretty important, right? An overseer, he would tell Titus, must be above reproach. Every time Paul talks about a pastor, an elder, an overseer, he talks about being above reproach. What does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? It means simply that accusations can't stick. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're above accusation. It's that their life is so impeccable. Their life is so clean that accusations couldn't stick. Calvin, I think, is so helpful here. He says this. Both words mean, that is, the both times he uses above reproach, means that the pastor should not be tainted by any disgrace that might distract his authority, or distract from his authority. It is not possible to find a man who is faultless. In other words, it doesn't mean he's sinless or faultless. It is one thing to be weighed down with ordinary faults that do not tarnish a person's reputation Because most other good men share such faults. But, Calvin writes, it is totally different matter to have a reputation that is derided and blackened by scandal. To be above reproach means 
that you live in circumspectly. You live in a way, you live in the light in such a way that people know who you are. They know your faults and they know your strengths. They're not surprised by anything. It's similar to many years ago, the Billy Graham rule, where Billy Graham would say, hey, I'm just not going to meet, meet alone with a woman. Why? Be, not, not because of, really not necessarily because of temptation, though that was part of the issue. He wanted to be above reproach. He knew that no one could ever accuse him of having any illicit affair with another woman because he was never alone with another woman. It's impossible. It's impossible to have an affair with somebody when you're not alone with them. All right? Just kind of quite impossible. And that's Billy Graham's point. In other words, accusations don't stick. Brothers and sisters, we ought to uphold this. We want to make sure this. I remember a number of years ago in a, in a senior leadership position here in our state convention. They were looking to hire a new executive, uh, a high level, $200,000 a year job, a very important job. And you know what the, one of the members of the search committee did? Well, this individual that they were looking to hire, he was a big Harley Davidson rider. He loved Harley Davidson. He had a Harley himself and rode cross country all the time. So you know what this committee member did? He picked up the phone. He looked up the address of the, of the candidate and found the Harley Davidson shop the closest to his house and called it, cold called it. Picked, hey, do you know this individual? Oh, well, yeah, he's a regular customer. Do you know anything about him? No, we don't, but the shop manager does. Here's the phone for him. And he went on to ask some questions. What is he like? How does he talk? How does he represent himself? Is he above reproach? That's what it means to be above reproach. To, to be, doesn't mean one is above the standard, but one who it lives a circumspect life. Well, Paul goes on to say, not only is he above reproach, but he's the husband of one wife. Now, we're going to deal with this one a little bit this week and a whole lot next week because uh, we as Southern Baptists get this one wrong a whole lot. Literally, in the, in, the, in the Greek language, it says that an elder is to be a one-woman man. It does not, he's not talking about divorce here, friends. If Paul knew the word for divorce and he would have used it, but he didn't use the word divorce. Now, does that mean... That he's not talking about divorce? Not at all. I think he's talking a lot more broadly than divorce. Well, what about remarriage? Can, can, a, can a brother who uh, got a divorce before he's a Christian and he's remarried to a new wife, is he disqualified? Oh, what about a, a bachelor? It says he has to be a one-woman man, a, a, a husband. Does that mean that a single man can't be an elder? Not at all. For Paul himself was a single elder. Perhaps even Timothy himself. What does it mean? What means fidelity to his wife? One woman man is a man who's committed to only one woman, and that's his wife, not any other woman. He's got eyes for only one woman. He cares for only one woman. He wants to love only one woman. He wants to uh, nurture and, and care for this one woman that, that God has given him. That's to be a one woman man. You know, you know, so often we focus on this question of divorce. But, but you do realize that a man could be married to a wife for 50 years and never have been divorced from her, but have been unfaithful to her for 50 years. That man is no more qualified than the man who was divorced. Again, we will get in more detail, but I do not believe that, that, that necessarily it's a case-by-case -case basis. You know, so often we paint these things with broad brushes, but, but what he's talking about is fidelity. Was he faithful? 
Now, we can get to the question of divorce. We can, we can think about all the details that went into that. What, what were the circumstances? Was it the, the wife leaving? All these kind of things. What, what, a lot of questions to ask. But we can't just settle on this one thing. Fidelity to marriage. Winston Churchill, the great leader of, of England, attended a banquet once there in London. And he was asked a question there in front of everyone. They were going around the room asking this question. If you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And people began to move around the room answering this question, and it came to Churchill. Now, Churchill was sitting next to his wife, whom he loved quite dearly. And everyone wondered, what would would the great Winston Churchill say he would be? And he said this, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. In other words... Fidelity. He was a clever man. He was a smart man. Uh, He was a one-woman man. And that's what it means, is that elders ought to be one-woman men. How many of a pastorate's ministry, how many churches' ministries have been ruined over this one matter? He ought to also be sober-minded, that is, sound in judgment doesn't merely mean that he doesn't have any wine in his system, but rather that his mind is sound. He is steady. He's a steady hand. An elder ought to be steady, not to be driven by and tossed by all the winds of the world. Brothers and sisters, I have served with pastors that are not sound in their judgment. They're not settled. It takes everything to keep them off. They, they, they're running after the, the, the latest gimmicks and tricks out there. The newest discipleship program. 40 days to this, and 60 days to this, and purpose that, and purpose this, and sound mind. Similar to Titus 2, older men ought to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. This is what Paul goes on to say there in verse 2. He ought to be self-controlled. Mind and will under control. Wise. Now again, as we go through this list, the elders on an elder board will have these at varying degrees, but they ought to possess all of them. Some might be more self-controlled than another. One might be more modest, temperate, self-respected than others, but they ought to still all possess them. One might be more hospitable than the other, but they all ought to be hospitable. This is what he rounds out the list with respectable. One who is temperate, modest. He carries himself with respect. People listen to him because he's respectable. He's not a fool. He's not a loudmouth, not boastful. He's, res- he's respectable and finally hospitable. We, we all know the word hospitable in the New Testament means lover of strangers. He has a home always welcoming those who are strange. <laughs> Church folk, you used from strange folks. Why? Now, as we go through each of these lists, I hope you notice that none of these are exemplary. These are ordinary. Every Christian is called to be above reproach. Every every man is called to be a one-woman man. Every every Christian is called to be sober-minded, self-respected, self-controlled, and hospitable. 2 John, we ought to be hospitable. But what is it? What is it that sets even elders apart from deacons? What we see here in the latter half of verse 2, isn't it? The function of a pastor is that he is able to teach. He's been gifted by God to teach. There's a lot of teachers in the world, right? 
What does it mean that he's able to teach? Well, to be able to teach means that when you communicate, people listen, understand, and follow. In other words, they're edified. All right? A lot of, lot of so-called preachers that are not quite edifying. They don't help. It wasn't helpful. It was actually hurtful. That didn't build up. That actually tore me down. To be able to teach is to adequately teach the word of God so that the saints are built and the church is glorified, or rather the church is built and God is glorified. As Paul would say to Titus, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, that an elder must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, teaching, preaching, is about communicating doctrine and refuting false doctrine. That's why you'll hear Pastor Rod and I often not only talking about the positive, this is what we ought to do, but showing you where those who claim the name of Jesus go wrong, even in our contemporary culture. To preach is to take the point of the passage and make it clear to the people and apply it to their life together. This is what we hope to do. But the word apt to teach does not mean that he is necessarily gifted to be a preacher. And see, again, this is where we kind of get off. To be a preacher takes a particular gift and skill that not all elders possess. Though they could on a fly, maybe perhaps preach a good sermon, it is not their ordinary gift. I think of someone like Pastor Scott who did not regularly preach here, did not regularly teach in a formal, functional way, maybe a Sunday school class, though those are all good things to do. But he had the ability to teach, and people followed through text and emails and phone calls and, and over meals and conversations. He had an effect to teach. People followed. How do I know that? Well, Pastor Scott told me to do this, and I did it. Well, amen, brother. That's exactly what you should have done. Or he counseled us in our marriage. Or he helped us think through this decision in our life. Or, or he, he did this or did that. You see, see you, you don't want to just confuse that the pastor is only the guy who, who gives you the meal every week. No, we have other pastors who are, who are feeding you in other ways throughout the week. As, now, why do I point this out? Because as members, here's what you need to be doing. Who around us are who meet these qualifications and who are feeding us without the title? Feeding us well, by the way. Feeding us well. So an elder is one who teaches and gives instruction and is able to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He ought to be one who is able to teach teach and be patient in his teaching one of the qualifications i believe of a good pastor is one who's patient and teaches patiently i have no glimmer of hope that you remember my sermons every week i do not think that i'm that good of a preacher but there is something god glorifying and quite mysterious that happens in the ebb of flow of the regular pulpit ministry of a local church. In other words, it's the totality and, and not just merely the moment. It, it's the long game. 
It's the overall, the big picture, not just the singular snapshot from one particular Sunday. But is being a good teacher enough? I don't think so. To be clear, I believe there are men in, in local churches who are good teachers. They're godly men, but they're not necessarily elders. And that's okay. There's, there, we ought to fulfill the function. Remember, Christ has gifted his church with a plethora of gifts. He hasn't given the whole church just a bunch of mouths. He's given us ears and hands and feet and knees and elbows and, and even those private parts that Paul says we've got to cover up. He's gifted us in a variety of ways, and we want to affirm each and every one of them. Being a good communicator, I don't believe, is enough. In fact, that's one of the telltale signs that we are being like the world. Remember the problem there in Corinth. Apollos was a great orator of, of the word. He was a great preacher, but that didn't mean he got it right every time. I think Calvin, I love Calvin's wit. John Calvin, again, I think proves helpful here. He says this, Paul does not mean able to teach to mean a facility in speaking. That is, one has the faculty of speaking. One can speak publicly in front of people. As we know, there are many people who have much to say but edify no one. Hey, you've been in those, those churches, right? A lot to say but a whole lot of nothing is being edified. Edification, I believe, is the key mark that distinguishes a biblical elder. Are the saints being edified? Are people listening and being built up? Well, Paul continues in verse 3 with four negative characteristics. We won't spend as much time with these. You'll see four of them. Number one, not a drunk. Now, you might think, well, my goodness, Paul, that's not surprising. He ought not to be a drunk. Well, why would Paul put that in the list here? Well, perhaps the, those false teachers were given to drunkenness. We know that the, those that were taken into false doctrine in Corinth were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were drinking all the wine up at the, at the feast there before the Lord's Supper. And, and so Paul says, hey, look, look, elders ought not to be drunkards. Now, it doesn't mean they are to be teetotalers but one is to drink in moderation. Now, there is much caution, of course, in the, in, the, in the consumption of alcohol. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for the kings to drink wine or for the rulers to take strong drink. Why? Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and perverted the rights of all who have been affected. In other words, you lose the ability to be self-controlled, sober-minded, when you are consuming alcohol. And so it is wise to avoid. Number two, they are not to be violent but gentle. The word violent means not to be a bully, but rather to be forbearing. How many of a ministry has been wrecked by one who's a bully pastor, a bully pulpit, right? Y'all been there? Damn, just getting up on that pulpit and going after people. Even naming names. Ouch. Not recently here locally, a pastor decided to do that. He's not a pastor there at that church anymore. Forbearing. The kind of quality we want to see in an elder is one who's gentle. I love this quote. 
one who does not insist on every letter of the law or custom. Amen. We're not about making little mini-means running around here. There are cultural expressions to be found, and we ought to celebrate those. We ought not to restrict people's cultural preferences or, or, or personal preferences all because we want to be in charge. Remember, contextually here, there was this issue of quarreling going on. And so not, not naturally, he moves on to quarrelsome. That he ought not to be a brawler, but rather to be peaceable. You know, when you're dealing with false teaching, it's easy to drift into quarrelsome, always looking to pick a fight. I find those that know their Bible well love to fight. <laughs> this is true. They, they, for whatever reason, they like to quarrel. They like to argue. And hey, I like a good theological argument, but I ain't got time for that. I, I mean, people are dying and going to hell. Like, let's get on the road here Not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. Man, you would think Paul was writing this in the 21st century, right? Not a lover of money. One who's not covetous. Now again, in chapter 6 and verse 10, he says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Entire ministries built upon the mechanism of making money ought not to be a lover of money. There's a lot of fleecing of sheep going on, right? Not feeding of sheep. More focus on trying to get the money from the sheep rather than, than edifying and building them up. We could tell countless stories of pastors and pastorates and churches built upon the love of money rather than the love of God. And so the question is for us this morning, how do these standards measure up to our own understanding of what makes a pastor? When we think about calling elders to this church and affirming an elder and saying, yes, we want to set this brother apart as an elder. What standard are we using? One author wrote this, today's candidates for leadership in the church are often measured by the sort of criteria applied to the corporate setting in America, where education, innovation, and youthful energetic image governed by a professional profile Brothers and sisters, we ought not to borrow from the world in these ways. We ought to see that Christ has clearly set out the standards by which we ought to live by. This is what we ought to see in those around us. This is what you should uphold, Pastor Rod, hold Pastor Rod and myself too. These standards, not some in denominationally imposed success metric that if you have so many baptisms in one year, you must be successful. And if you don't think that's true of the SBC, you haven't been paying attention. The last time I checked, Pastor Rod and I don't have the ability to save souls. Only Jesus does. How am I to say how many times this thing gets filled up? If we're doing our responsibility and our job, I guess William Carey wouldn't be very successful in the SBC. We ought not to measure our success by any worldly metric, but by faithfulness to these standards. This is the standard by which we ought to live by. Finally, we see here that men, that all men, especially pastors in verse 4 and 7, should exemplify the gospel in their communities. Now, very quickly, he gives three practical examples that are so straightforward you don't need a lot of interpretive help on. 
Number one, the home. The pastor should exemplify the gospel in their community, namely their home. If you can't get it right at home, what makes you think you're going to get it right at the church? It's pretty straightforward. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, or rather, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For, here's the reason, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church, God's church? Again, that word manage repeated. That's the function that Paul's returning. He's like, hey, how are you going to manage people if you can't manage your own people? In other words, in the New Testament, the home was the microcosm of the church. It was a reflection. The pastors are to pastor their family first and foremost. And boy, can I just say, can we testify to how many churches have gone down a really dark road because a pastor didn't pastor his family first? He cared more about pastoring the church than pastoring his family. And let's say I believe he failed at pastoring the church because he failed at pastoring his family. The primary emphasis ought to be on caring for one's family. We ought to ask. You know, so often pastors are interviewed by churches without ever talking to a pastor's wife or their family. That ought not to be. I think it's full game. I think Paul says you ought to ask, hey, how's dad when he's not up on the stage? Is he quarrelsome? Is he a lover of money? Is he gentle? Is he self-controlled? Is he a drunkard? These are the things we ought to think. We have this great illustration of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli, the priest of Israel, didn't care much for his family. And his two sons were a piece of work. And caused a whole lot of problems for the people of God. All because Eli couldn't be a dad at home. Brothers and sisters, we ought to hold high the responsibility for a pastor to care and to manage his own family well, to lead his own family well, to be the head of the home. How, how are you to be the head of the church if you can't even be the head of your own home? If you've advocated that role to your wife or to someone else in the home, how is it that you won't do the same in the church? If you can't lead at home, how, how are you going to lead God's people? It's hard enough. The second community we see here is the church in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up or conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is pretty straightforward. Paul says, hey, logic dictates that it's probably not wise to, to nominate a, a recent convert. Why? Well, because he might be given into pride. He might think that he's arrived, that he's come up to some position of, of importance in the life of the church. And in doing so, fall into condemnation of the devil. In other words, he, he will be an easy mark. And it's so true. If you can remember back the many years ago when you came to faith in Christ, you were ready to take the world, weren't you, for Jesus? You were ready to save the world. You were going to be the next great Billy Graham. You are going to be the greatest preacher. You may even practice in front of the mirror a few times. But then someone said to you, what do you think about superlapsarianism? How do you feel about that? It's true. We ought not to be quick 
Paul says elsewhere, we ought to be slow with the laying on of hands. Why? We ought to be slow so that we might, they might be tested. Now, this does not necessarily mean that the person is young. Someone may have come to faith in Christ when they were 10 years old, been studying the Bible, faithful to Jesus. Now they're 20. They've been a Christian for 10 years. There's no reason that we ought not to affirm them. We ought to. I heard one author say years ago that, that, that churches ought to hire young pastors who will tear it like a lion, like a young lion, will tear up the furniture. But you'll have them in your home grow up to be a fierce lion who will defend you and fight for you. That ought to be true. We ought to raise up from within those from among ourselves. And finally, we see here that a pastor should exemplify the gospel in the public square. Verse 7 is, I think, an all too often neglected verse in qualifications. Moreover, he must be well thought of by whom? Outsiders, non-Christians. Really? I thought the church was just supposed to kind of come in and hunker in and, and be separate from the world. Not at all. The pastors of a local church ought to be the pillars of a community. They ought to be set out in a way that they live in above reproach, that if they are out in the community, there is no wrong said about them. Now, there may be lies about them, but rather they are well thought of by outsiders. They ought to build a reputation among Christians that even impresses them. They ought to give themselves to walking in wisdom, as Paul says to the church in Colossae, walking in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Whether it be through uh, community events, being known by elected officials, being known by community leaders, being involved, talking with them, praying for them, just being known in them as upstanding citizens, people who pick up their trash. <laughs> And do the small things in the community. They're good neighbors. Pastors ought to be good neighbors. A number of years ago, when, well, actually 13 years ago, when my wife and I were, were looking at a place to, to live when we were moving to Maryland from the Midwest, we went to one particular place to, to rent a house, and, and the gentleman was a little uneasy with renting. He, he was just quite not, he just wasn't sure he wanted to do it. And I, and I was like, sir, why would you put a house on the market to rent if you're, so, if you're so worried about doing it? That doesn't seem quite wise. And he says, well, it's not so much I'm concerned about renting it. I'm concerned about renting it to a pastor. I was like, oh, my. He said that, yes, the, the former guy was a youth pastor in town, and he would, get, he would throw these wild parties. There would be beer bottles all over the front of the lawn, and he trashed the house. Well, Sorry. I promise I won't do those often. No. <laughs> we didn't get the house. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Pastors must be examples to the flock in godliness and Christ-likeness. That is a must. We ought to live not pridefully before the congregation, be a, be, be a model privately in our homes and publicly, even in our community. I think Thomas Cramner put it well in the Book of Common Prayer when he asked the candidates this question. Will you be diligent to frame and fashion your own selves and your families according to the doctrine of Christ and to make both yourself and them as much as it lieth in you wholesome examples and patterns to the flock of Christ? Not to be patterns, a pattern to follow 
not little mini-me's, not, not doing everything the pastor does, but rather exemplify Jesus. Make Jesus big in our lives that helps you follow Jesus better. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has gifted and will continue to gift every local church with a plurality of godly pastors. Believe it, brothers and sisters. But you need to know something. You have a responsibility not only to know what a godly pastor is, but to pray for your pastors. And I mean it. I don't mean if you get time, pray. Look how Paul concludes. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I love all of the gifts you give and the, and the, the praises that you give and the, the encouragements that you give. I, I, I cherish every bit of them. But I also covet your prayers. And I know Pastor Rod does the same. Pastors are in the crosshairs of the devil. You take a pastor out, you take a church out. Can we just point to some of the ministries of great leaders who have fallen in just 2020? Ministries that had a global reach and, a, and men who were sinful and wicked before God. And many people's faith now tarnished and questioned because of their leaders. Brothers and sisters, let us hold high this office and let us pursue for God's glory. Calvin, I'll conclude with his words. It is no light matter to represent God's son in the office of pastor. It is such a great task as erecting and extending God's kingdom and caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has destined to purchase with his own blood and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. Brothers and sisters, let God, let it be our prayer here at Catonsville Baptist Church that we pray diligently that God would raise up the next generation of godly pastors to lead his church for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this. That is our prayer this morning. It's a simple prayer, Father. Let us exemplify Christ in our leadership, in our affirmation of elders around us, of the pastors in our church, and let us be a part. Oh, Father, would you please just let us be a part of it. We know it is your work. We give you the glory for it, but I pray that we might be a part of raising up a new generation of pastors and teachers from even among those sitting in this room that will be the next generation of shepherds and teachers at Catonsville Baptist Church and beyond. We give you the glory for this in Christ's name. Amen.